to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watch Fiddler on the Roof. In pre-revolutionary Russia, a Jewish peasant with traditional values contends with marrying off three of his daughters with modern romantic ideals while growing anti-Semitic sentiment threatens his village. Buck. Yeah. This movie. <sighs> the fact that you and I have not seen this movie is a crime. We've committed a musical theater crime. We've it's committed a, a movie crime. Also true. And to cover what is truly an epic movie, we're going to need a guest. We do need a guest. Diana, who's our guest today? Our guest is one of our favorite people. You know them from Dice Up Games. You know them from their super geek. You know them from Christmas Tide, Ohio, and Powered by the Players. It's Kristen Devine. Hi, thanks so much for having me back. Thank you for coming to talk about this amazing movie. Yes, and so that you're not alone in your crime against theater and movies. Mm -hmm. I also had not seen this. Oh, so we've all committed a movie crime. We committed a, a musical crime. We've done our penance. We, we have. We've watched it. Kristen, why hadn't you seen this? I don't know. I also, I guess I'm just going to talk about my sins i also have not seen i can't even look at you both the sound of music <gasps> and i'm looking away <laughs> that's a crime against diana it's a crime against diana i'm sorry that's that's a crime against diana proper yes do you is this something i don't know about you do, is this like one of your top five favorite movies that one is so ingrained in my like upbringing mm -hmm. i used to go to sleep to the tape of the soundtrack and also, my mother used to sing How Do You Solve a Problem Like Diana. Instead of How Do You Solve a Problem, problem like, like Maria. Maria. It's a great burn on me. Um, <laughs> so Sound of Music is precious. Also, Julie Andrews. Yeah, I will, I will correct that. I apologize. It, it will bring joy to your heart. Will it bring as much joy to your heart as this movie? Because wowzers. It's though. not as dance worthy. It is a sing worthy. That's mm -hmm. true. But this one makes you want to dance more. Lots of dancing. Every song in this musical is a banger. It slaps. Straight up. This is a three-hour movie mm -hmm. that goes in some real dark places. It does. And, and that's opposed to the stage musical itself, by the mm -hmm. way. The stage musical is very much just sort of a celebration. They don't dig into the themes as much. And we'll get into why that was chosen for the film. Okay. But even so, there's so much joy and fun and dancing, and it makes you want to get off your butt and just run around the living room. I love all the music. And I have to say that there were so many songs in this movie that I just know culturally, because they're songs that other media would play that I grew up hearing in other places i grew up in a really heavy jewish population at school so it's just it was really common and the funny thing is i knew more about this movie from gilmore girls <laughs> 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 so there were there are points in the story that i knew about from a very specific episode in gilmore girls where they do fiddler on the roof and it was just really weird to have that context playing in my mind and then to know the songs from those things, like Matchmaker, I'm, I'm playing the Robin Williams version from Mrs. Doubtfire. 
And it's, it's just so bizarre. It's surreal almost to be imagining that. Yeah. Was that written for Fiddler on the Roof? Do we know? Absolutely. All of these songs, every single one of these songs are from the original stage musical. And the script itself, in terms of the music, in terms of the book, are all sticking very closely to the original musical, which was produced in 1964. All of this was done for the stage. I think there's one number that they cut for the movie Mm -hmm. so that they could do a different scene instead. But for the most part, it's sticking very close. It's just expanding on it because of the way they've set it. Mm -hmm. And so like that is the other hard part is that this musical was such a phenomenon. And then the movie became such a phenomenon that the songs are so ingrained in American culture now. Yeah. Like, you know songs from Fiddler on the Roof. Even if you've never seen any hint or part of it, you know songs from this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was me with Matchmaker Matchmaker. Yeah. They started the the two girls started singing it and I was and like, like, I know what? Mm-hmm. Is this the original? I didn't even Google it because I didn't want to Google while I was watching it. But yeah, I was like, is this the original match? Because I've heard that song my whole life. Yeah. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a find, catch me a catch. Matchmaker, matchmaker, look through your book and make me a perfect match. Matchmaker, matchmaker, I'll bring the veil. You bring the groom, slender and pale. Matchmaker, if I were a rich man. Rich man. Which we all know the Gwen Stefani. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to life. To life. Sunrise, sunset. Tradition. We've all heard some play on that. And then do you love me? Which is just, I'm a little partial to the Gilmore Girls version of that. <laughs> Fair. But the the way they lock together in the show is also incredible. Sure. That's what's really amazing about this is that those songs were written for a purpose. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. You know, you start this movie and it feels like a Jewish hour town. Because you think you're just going to go back and forth between a bunch of different characters and get life stories. Mm -hmm. But slowly it turns and it's what's magical in terms of the storytelling is that tension between the new world coming in and the traditions that they follow. Mm -hmm. And the magic of a a character like Tevye, who is the most lovable, adorable person, but does not fucking know what to do with all of this because it doesn't make any sense. He's that guy who's like, this is the path I was told to do. These are the rules. This is how we're supposed to do things. Don't mess with the system. Don't mess with my system. Even yeah. though he's also the whole time going like, hey, God, what the fuck? This is dumb. <laughs> I don't like this. I'm following the rules. What's happening? Dear God, was that necessary? (laughs) Did you have to make him lame just before the Sabbath? (sighs) That wasn't nice. It's enough you pick on me. Bless me with five daughters, a life of poverty. That's all right. But what have you got against my horse? Really? Sometimes I think 
when things are too quiet up there, you say to yourself, let's see, what kind of mischief can I play on my friend Tevier? I think that's everyone now. Like, everyone now is looking at it like, I fought, like, I followed the plan. I did this. I did everything that the world told me I was supposed to do, and I'm still getting screwed over. This is dumb. Yeah. <laughs> We're all Tevia. We're all Tevia. Every all Tevia. time. Shaking our fists and go. I did not think I was going to care for that character. Again, I knew nothing, nothing yeah. about this film or musical, right? I love it. And so I, when I first saw him and when he first started talking to God as, as a not religious person, I was like, do I have three hours of this? <laughs> Fair. I have to watch this person talk to God for three hours. And honestly, no offense. I, it's just for me, right? I it was like, yeah. I, ugh, I may not love mm-hmm. this. But he's so endearing and so honest. And I was just like, I don't care who you're talking to. I just want to hear you talk more. Yeah. <laughs> just the just the whole scene with Perchik is mm. magnificent for what we deal with. Yeah. You know, it's no crime to be poor. Mm. In this world, it is the rich where the criminals. Someday their wealth will be ours. Oh, that would be nice. If they would agree, I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's still so pertinent today. All of it is so mm-hmm. good. It is. It's just like, I'm poor. What gives? <laughs> love it. And it, yeah, it's totally like, I would love to have a rich man's problems. Please. Oh my God. Like, pl- yeah. like I, I've said it all the time. I was like, Lord, please grant me the opportunity to prove that winning the lottery wouldn't change me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Very good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is a difficult movie in terms of the story and the writing to separate from the original show sure. specifically. So that's the hard part. Where the difference comes in, and we'll talk about it, is the staging and the setup of this movie. Okay. We also make it into some award crimes because, uh, Diana, you and I have talked about a film that beat this in some very important categories. And I think you're going to get enraged later. Oh, I love an enraged Diana. Oh. I'll save that for down the road. Oh. So we're pro this movie. I am very pro this movie. Yeah. I mean, we're pro Fiddler on the Roof for sure. Yes. I definitely want to see the stage musical my next opportunity. Mm-hmm. I will say there is a new version out on Broadway right now, and there is a film version in the works for a new film mm-hmm. uh, it is going to be directed by one Thomas Kale, who directed Hamilton and oh. the Grease live broadcast. He also recently, he did all of Fosse Verdon on Hulu. Oh. So, so he knows what he's doing when it comes to musicals and, and filming things. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's a smart dude. They're very early on, I think, so there's no talk of productions and stuff. But the other thing is this movie, it's it's this movie's 50th anniversary, and it is a big deal. Okay. <laughs> so there are all sorts of celebrations and stuff going on for that. Wow. The budget for this movie was $9 million. That was the largest budget for United Artists that year. That's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially because by the late 1960s, the movie musical was nearly dead. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this several times on this show, got into it, especially with Hello, Dolly. Audiences were getting annoyed because the 
successful musicals had been one that that blended the Broadway spectacle with gritty realism. You know, West Side Story being a prime example of something doing that. Also, new critics and filmmakers were completely against the musical. You had people like Ebert and Pauline Kael who would ridicule stuff like, and rightfully so, stuff like Dr. Doolittle, which we've talked about on this show. Oh, God. Which is garbage. And you've got, you know, the Scorseses and the Coppolas of the world being influenced by European cinema. Norman Jewison, our director, Walter Mirisch, the producer, and United Artists were incredibly scared about this movie. They had no idea if it was going to do well. Giant roadshow musical productions like this just had shown to be big, big failures. Instead, it grossed $83,300,000. It became the highest grossing film of the year. It beat out the underground phenomenon of Shaft, the controversy of A Clockwork Orange, and an action-packed film we've also talked about on this show called The French Connection. Okay. <laughs> now I know. Now I, I know. dropped it right there. There's yep. there's Diana's rage coming out now. <laughs> uh oh. I don't know if that's rage. I don't, I'm gonna have to think about it. It's just this is like comparing mayonnaise and ketchup. They're just they're you hated the French Connection. <laughs> you did. <laughs> <laughs> I love you liked the pause. Dean Hackman. You liked Roy Scheider. You hated the movie. Okay, no, but my thesis statement was. Their aim was to make the best car chase, and they accomplished their goal. It's true. They did make one of the greatest car chases of all time. So for that, I applaud them. Everything else is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll deal with award rage later, okay? Fair. <laughs> Just to show how much of an impact this movie had, along with the show, when it was shown on television for the first time, it got 40 million viewers. Wow. Yeah, I believe That's it. what a big deal this movie is. And that's the other thing. This is a three-hour movie. Three yep. hours. Yeah. It is three whole hours with an intermission, and it's two hours before the intermission. And at no point did I care. Yeah. None. I could have done it in one sitting. I really could have. But I would, I really do want films to bring back the intermission. You want to tell a long story like that? Bring in a little bring intermission. intermission. Five minutes, everybody can go to the bathroom, come back, and enjoy the show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's worth I it. it. I love it. Because sometimes you've got an epic story to tell. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's real simple. All right. Well, let's get into our writing. We do have a lot of credited writers. The really only one screenwriter here, <laughs> um, because a lot of it is based off the show. But even before that, it is based off the stories of Shalom Aleichem. He wrote a set of stories called Tevye and His Daughters, but from 1883 to 1916, he wrote a total of 40 volumes of stories, novels, and plays, became probably the leading Yiddish writer in his era. He also wrote scholarly works in Hebrew, secular works in Russian, so that they could be widely published throughout the Russian Empire because they would not allow official publishing in Yiddish because the Russians were awful, <laughs> as vaguely hinted at in this movie. Vaguely. All of his stories were taken from real-life experiences living in the shtetls, which Anatevka is one of the shtetls. It is based around this community, this, these small, tight-knit communities of Jewish people throughout the Russian countryside. All of those villages were destroyed through the pogrom, 
we we get the vague scene of that at the end right before the intermission where they're burning down the villages but the pogrom was brutal it was horrible horrible wreckage of the czars against the jewish villagers and then that continued throughout the russian revolution i mean that was more just a full-on civil war but it just continued to displace all of these jews Alikum himself was forced out of Russia in 1905. He bounced back and forth throughout Europe, but all of his work was preserved, and that preserved a record of this time in Russia. So all of these stories, while they're hilarious and fun, and everybody talks about, like, if you ever go read these, they're amazing. They're just silly and fun and entertaining, but they also kept this part of Jewish culture alive. In World War I, as part of growing anti-Semitism, Shalom had to emigrate to America. He lost his son, Misha, to tuberculosis in America, and soon after, he passed away in 1916. Uh, He kept writing until he finally died. So he's a big deal. (laughs) The story of Tevye has been adapted a few other times. Sometimes in Yiddish cinema, there was a TV special of Tevye and his daughters, but Fiddler on the Roof became the biggest understanding of these stories. The people who created the show... They originally based it around the idea of a touring Jewish theater company. However, Joseph Stein, who wrote the original play and the screenplay, didn't think they could put that to music. So instead, he pointed them towards the Tevye stories, and that's when they realized they actually had a musical they could come up with. Then credited, we have Arnold Pearl. Arnold Pearl was like, I don't know if he was officially like the protector of Alikum stories, but he was one of the leading scholars or people that you talk to about using them. So he actually facilitated and arranged the adaptation of the stories. He was a longtime champion. And as a fun note, he also adapted Alex Haley and Malcolm X's The Autobiography of Malcolm X for a TV documentary. And that documentary eventually became one of the big basises for Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Then we have the musical writers. So we have Joseph Stein, who wrote the screenplay for this in the original play. This is really the only big film he ever did. He wrote for Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows and wrote the play Enter Laughing. And then we have Sheldon Harnick and Jerry Bach doing lyrics and music. This also is really their only film project. They mostly worked on stage. They wrote the musicals Fiorello, Mr. Wonderful, She Loves Me, and The Apple Tree. And Harnick would later go on to write English lyrics for the 1979 adaptation of The Umbrellas of Cherbourg which we just got done talking about, and for Michel Legrand's 1982 version of A Christmas Carol. Hmm. So we have all of that, and we need to add one additional name, who's not really writing words, but is absolutely integral to how the music sounds. Because orchestrating, arranging, and conducting the music for this film was a then-unknown John Williams. Pre-Star Wars. Wow, pre-anything. Pre-Jaws, pre-anything. He'd been working since the mid-60s, but this was the first big, big thing he worked on. That, to me, is all of the writing's great, right? And we we can talk about that. The starting point for me, though, is I listened to some of the Broadway recordings because I was curious. They're all fun. They're all great. And I imagine live, they're super entertaining. What John Williams does with the orchestration of this music packs some kind of magic because that's John Williams Mm -hmm. and instantly makes you feel immersed in the world. I don't know what it is, 
but he he took he tweaked little bitty things on the Broadway score and makes it absolutely huge and impactful. The biggest thing for me is the most immediate thing. If you listen to tradition and you listen to any of the Broadway recordings, it's a little bit faster and the drums don't come in nearly as loud. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word, tradition. Tradition, 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 tradition. John Williams, he slows it down just a little bit and then wham, wham with the drums immediately pulling you in. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word, tradition. And it's just like, he added something to it that really helped this movie. <laughs> One of the things he does is he rounds out his sound so well. Yeah. It, like, it, it's very full. Mm-hmm. But he's also, he's not afraid to be quiet, which we've, we've heard before, too, in shots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you only, sometimes you only need two notes. <laughs> right? And that's something with the, like the choreography, the dance choreography, like it's exactly what it has to be to tell your story. And John Williams does the same thing too. Like if it needs to be loud, it's going to be loud. If it needs to be quiet, it's going to be quiet. Like I'm going to use it. I'm going to do what needs to be done. And we'll mention that Jerome Robbins, who did the buck wild choreography of West Side Story that caused shin splints for the dancers. Yeah. And like is just bonkers, did all the choreography for this. Yeah, I believe that. That makes sense. Wildly different, just as impactful. (laughs) Taking that aside, because that to me is like the extra frosting on the cake. Right. All of the rest of this is so solid. And it's, you know, there's a lot of credited people, but it's all building on each other for the full adaptation of this show. The source material is already just so good. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also incredibly authentic, which is really important if you're going to do a Broadway musical in the mid-60s about Jews. You cannot get away from telling stories that are authentic and real. That's the other specter hanging over this movie. It's 25 years since the end of the Holocaust. Mm. So like you go, all of this is still really fresh. Yeah. Yeah audiences seeing it at the time would have really really felt that mm-hmm. i hadn't thought of that i was just processing that because for some reason it's I a lot there's a it's a lot <laughs> yeah i just i hadn't thought about the time difference from the holocaust and that is yeah talk about incredibly fresh still that would be i mean yeah. that yeah i mean i remember in just in elementary school my friend's grandparents coming to tell their story of escaping mm-hmm. so like just to be like going to a movie and being like these are seeds that were being planted of how this these things happened right um yep. oh absolutely like yeah <laughs> and if you if you want to get real frustrated the stuff that we're dealing with today the conspiracy theories sure. we deal with day draw a direct line back to these pogroms of course directly back to this era Oh, this this movie is still very, very relevant, which is is. very relevant, frustrating and sad, beautiful for the art. 
and and what's amazing too then is it's also so cathartic and joyful yeah and it is because it's just a great story it's so great that that's in there and that's Mm -hmm. important and it's also one of those stories that also you could just tell the plain story of tevia and his daughters and it Mm -hmm. would still be really fun yeah. And also a little mm. poignant and meaningful and all of that wrapped up together really adds another extra layer that I think is for me what really makes this movie so good. I'm just impressed that the movie was so well received um especially by folks who saw and loved the like Broadway version mm-hmm. because I think we all know that you that that doesn't <laughs> always translate. Can't always make a Broadway show or musical into a successful movie and have the same kind of impact. And I'm not, I, I haven't seen the, the Broadway show, so I'm not saying that the movie has the same kind of impact, but from what I hear, it sure mm-hmm. sounds like it gets close and that's impressive. We have the reverse now where like Broadway is such a destination and so many people it, you know, while the prices are ridiculous and it is inaccessible for a lot of people, for average tourists who do have the money to go, it's relatively easy to access. And the shows that are being produced often, you know, can cater to tourists. I mean, we have jukebox musicals. We have things that are based off of pre-existing movies and stuff. And, and that, that generates a lot for Broadway. Fiddler on the Roof in 1964 is so specifically an original production. I mean, the people who saw it saw it and it was magical. It didn't become a national and international phenomenon until the movie because the movies like the show was a hit on Broadway the movie made it something that everyone saw and we'll get into that it launched Fiddler becoming a national phenomenon possibly directly because of one of our stars (laughs) But I think, you know, the show itself was just, you know, your typical Broadway hit that's an original story that's telling something fresh that people haven't seen. But this movie, it, it traveled throughout the country and was a hit wherever they took it. So that's the big thing about it. Yeah. It wasn't just a New York thing. It wasn't just a, a Broadway thing. It was like a whole everyone who saw it. And, you know, we're talking about we're talking about Jews. We're talking about Christians. We're talking about people who don't believe in anything they all still responded to this movie right yeah it made nearly 10 times its money and it cost a lot of money to make yes it did <laughs> yeah eight million dollars back then that, and back, back then, then in seven right right which yeah that's a lot of money i think they took what was already there and they tapped into something really really impactful for people and i will contend that that is in large part to our director. Mm-hmm. who is Norman Jewison. This is his third appearance on this show, and all three of those movies are bangers. Before this, he did television directing, Send Me No Flowers, The Cincinnati Kid, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, In the Heat of the Night, which we talked about for our 1967 okay. series. Okay. Great movie, dealing with difficult subject matter, but in a really smart way. Yeah, no, no. And 1968's The Thomas Crown Affair. After this, he directs Jesus Christ Superstar from 1973, Rollerball, and Justice for All, Agnes of God, Moonstruck. Wow. Okay. That movie slaps hard. Mm -hmm. You love Moonstruck. Moonstruck's amazing. So good. So good. 
Other People's Money, The Hurricane, and the television special Dinner with Friends. Wow. What do we think of Norman Jewison's directing of this movie? I'm very pro. (laughs) I'm very pro. Yeah, I don't have a lot of faults for this movie overall. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be a very positive guest this time around. I don't have very many complaints. (laughs) It's hard to fault a whole lot that's going on here. Again, you have such really good subject matter. Mm. He made a number of choices, not in terms of like, what we would normally think is like big directing choices, mm-hmm. but I feel like in the pre-production of the movie uh-huh. that okay. I think solidify why this is such a great adaptation. Okay. Oh, interesting. It might have started off rocky. United Artists brought him in thinking he was Jewish. His first words upon meeting them was, you know I'm not Jewish, right? I mean, his last name is Jewison, so... That's bad. That's a bad idea. It is very bad to assume. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a film where it's appropriate to ask, do you have Jewish heritage? Yep. We think it's appropriate to know, you know, this is a film where that's a plus. The musical took as its design inspiration a series of paintings by Mark Chagall, okay. one of which shows a fiddler on a roof. And using that as a central metaphor. So the the stage production, and typically they repeat this a lot, is like a flat set with these like muted colors of mm-hmm. of these row houses and things like that. And so it's very, you very clearly feel like you're on a set in like a fairy tale kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Although it's it's a poor Russian village, so it's not like magical. But it's like, you don't feel like you're in the real world when you're seeing Everything's very angular, everything's very muted and, and toned, and it's all very stagey. Jewison was dedicated to the more serious themes of anti-Semitism and the loss of tradition and culture and everything wrapped up in it. He really thought that the musical had a lot more deeper themes that weren't necessarily getting brought out in the stage version. Okay. Rather than using that impressionistic look, he opted to try to film on location. He wanted a naturalistic, realistic approach to the filming of the movie. His quote, in the theater, it is easier to accept a stylized, unreal atmosphere. Film introduces the real world with real scenery and real sounds, unquote. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the most reasonable quotes I've heard from a director on making a musical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, agreed. I love that. He wanted the audience who saw the movie to actually feel like they were in the middle of a village mm-hmm. of Anatevka in this real life. Now, filming in Russia would have been impossible at the time because it is 1970 and the Cold War is going on. Fair. Yeah. Um, this film is, is mainly set in Ukraine. Um, okay. They talk about Kiev a lot and Perchik is going to go to Kiev and So they are in a shtetl south of Kiev in Ukraine. However, one of the communist leaders in that area, Josip Broz Tito of Yugoslavia, was not like his other friends in the USSR. He was a fan of American culture and a huge fan of movies. He was one of the weird ones who like enjoyed the parties and the like culture and like reaching out. And so he allowed them to film. In Yugoslavia, in what is now Croatia. So they filmed in and around Zagreb. It's very hard. Yugoslavia has been split apart into like 12 different countries at this point. Mm -hmm. 
The USSR was not pleased with their counterpart, especially because the film confronts the pogrom and all the, uh, the crimes of the Russian state against Jews. However, the villages that they were in had all been wrecked and destroyed by 1919. They are in a lot of the places where the shtetls would have stood. So they're literally filming in the actual site of the story. Okay. They only did studio scenes at Pinewood and in London when there was weather problems out in Croatia. That's fair. But they try, he tried as hard as he could to film all of that. And man, you feel it. I really do love that natural feel. The scene that gets me, and of course the choreography is amazing, but the thing that got me was during the bottle dance mm-hmm. when the dirt kicks up. And just Mm. flows through the screen and you go, wow, this is real. This is really, really real. You would never get that on a soundstage. Mm -hmm. You just can't. You you cannot plan for that kind of movie magic to happen on a stage. And there are all these little moments like that throughout the movie Mm -hmm. that just pop up that you go, there's no other way you could have done this. And it feel as authentic and real. And it makes... It makes those difficult scenes that much more impactful, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it also makes the joyful scenes that much more joyful and full of life. Yeah. Yeah. You get a little bit of the sense because you get the presentation that you would if you were seeing a live musical, but you also, because you see the dust, because you, you kind of see the messiness, you feel like you're there a little bit. You get, you get that bit and you wouldn't have gotten that if you were just in on a soundstage. Makes it far more emotional. Yes. In a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Yeah. And like, I could totally understand that on stage, you could get that just as convincing. Because some of, some of that on stage is that you can afford to be a little more impressionistic with whatever your set is because mm-hmm. the actors are there. And a lot of this show relies on you connecting with those actors. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. You connect with the actors in this movie, too. But one of the really smart things that he's doing as a director is using that setting, knowing what's going to be on camera is going to pull you in enough so that, Kristen, you know, we don't have just a guy talking to God off screen for three hours because it could have easily devolved into that if Mm -hmm. you didn't have the setting around you to buy in. Yeah, that's true. I was thinking of the... I think it's the first scene where he's talking to God. I could be wrong now after three hours, but um, where he's talking about his horse being lame <laughs> and he's what, right. And he's walking the horse and yeah, you're right. You, there's just so much that you see so much depth to, to the scene that it does really seem like you're just kind of, not that you're just watching someone talk, but that it's, it's very real that like you're passing this person by versus watching them on a screen. There's mm-hmm. more of like, I'm included in this, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. That to me was the key for this whole thing was that choice alone. And then all of his decisions flow out from that choice. Production designer Robert F. Boyle studied the plans of nearly 100 turn of the century Ukrainian synagogues to design the synagogue we see in this film. That is commitment. That synagogue is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Gorgeous. And in order to get a grittier look, Jewison told his director of photography, Oswald Morris, to film in an earthy tone. He wanted some kind of muted color to filter the lens through. Morris 
was well known for shooting full color films with wild different styles to try to get the color palette to come out in unusual ways. Some of the films he's worked on were Oliver, The Man with the Golden Gun, which we've talked about on this show before, and The Man Who Would Be King, which we've talked about on this show before. Okay. So Morris was trying to figure this out, and he saw a woman wearing brown nylons in the exact color that he knew he wanted to filter everything through. He asked the woman if he could have them, and then he filmed the entire movie with those stockings over the lens of the camera. Oh my gosh. If you watch closely, you can occasionally see the weave of the fabric over the lens. Matchmaker is when it's particularly noticeable. Okay. I'm going to have to rewatch this. He filtered all the natural light through that so it feels dustier, dingier, and a little more gritty than you would normally see. Until, of course, we get to Sunrise Sunset, which was not lit by any actual lights. It was lit by the candles everyone is holding. Mm. It's so beautiful. It's oh, good. my it's God. Gorgeous. It's so good. Again, the songs themselves are so good. Norman Jewison is not trying to outdo the musical in any way. That's the no. other thing he's doing as a director. Mm-hmm. All he is trying to do is say, how do I make the image match the song? And sometimes that just means Tevye dancing around a barn throwing food at chickens. Which I like. It's, yeah. it's awesome. Oh, my yard with the chicks and turkeys and geese and ducks for the town to see and hear. Squawking just as noisily as they can. And each loud will land like a trumpet on the ear. As if to say, here lives a wealthy man. But sometimes it means staging a glorious scene of a village celebrating a wedding. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Lit by candle. And it fits that song so well. (laughs) So it just, it's, it's very, very expertly done. One of the ways that his eye for detail pays off During the Sabbath prayer, Hoddle and Chava are on each end of the screen, separated by Perchik, who you can see the back of his head. Mm -hmm. That happens right after Tevye sings, May you be like Ruth and like Esther. Hoddle, like Ruth, follows her husband wherever he goes. Chava, like Esther, is split between faves. That's the kind of detail he dove into. (laughs) Uh, Very, very biblical. Uh... Norman Jewison, you did so good. That's commitment. Now, let's talk about who is now going to be one of our favorite people ever in our cast. It is Chaim Topol, just known for many as Topol, playing Tevye. Before this, he was really only in Israeli films. He is an Israeli actor. He had some small American and international roles, but... He first appeared as Tevye in the 1967 London production that was also massively okay. successful. After this, he was in an adaptation of Brecht's Galileo, Flash Gordon. For your eyes only, we have talked about Topol on the show for our Bond series mm-hmm. and the television miniseries The Winds of War and War and Remembrance. He didn't do a whole lot because he played Tevye for 40 years. Gosh. What? He appeared in 
approximately 2,500 stage performances as Tevye. That's a lot of Tevye. His final performance as Tevye was in 2009. That was 12 years ago. He was 74 at the time. He was 35 years old when they made this movie. Wow. And he is playing 50. In fact, to make him appear older, the makeup team took 15 white hairs from Norman Jewison's beard and put them on his eyebrows. Seven on the left, eight on the right. I got to say, the makeup department is phenomenal. They did a good job. For this movie. It's very natural. Yes, because for him, you're... I, I'm just like, oh, he's he's just got to be kind of a big burly guy. And then you see him and he's like, nah, he's just kind of like an average 70s dude with a mustache. He doesn't look made up. No. So to find out that he was only 35 and he's playing someone who's definitely in their mid to late 50s. Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. That's really good. because That's very I, impressive. Yep. Yeah. By his estimation, he has toured in every U.S. state and Canadian province twice playing Tobel. Jeez. He was nominated for a Tony in 1991 for playing Topol 20 years after this? Yeah? This was his yeah. career. He made a life out of playing Tevye. And I, he's talked about, I don't have like explicit quotes, but he's talked mm-hmm. about like it was such a joy because he's like, I got to take this character to people who had never seen it. We were talking mm-hmm. to my mom this morning. It was one of the first things she ever saw in a theater. And he was the Tevya. Wow. Because, like, that, he did it for so long. He toured every production. So anybody who saw it saw him as Tevya until he finally was like, I'm too old. I got to retire. Wow. So, like, he is Tevya in Truly. so many ways. Yeah. What wow. do we think of Topol in this movie? He's so charming. Mm-hmm. Like, I instantly knew every television character who has drawn from him as inspiration. Like, I'm just watching this and going, there's George Costanza, there's Abe Simpson, uh, there, like, there's just so much that I was like, they're all Tevya. And sometimes that's not always meant to be, like, you can tell that they're pulling it in a bad way. But it's like, this character is so well-rounded and amazing. And that's because it's him. Topol is Tevya. <laughs> like, there's, there's no blue sky there. I think there's a, there's a little bit of blue sky. Sure, but like, sure. But 40 years, that's, that's his. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's his. That's it his belongs character. to him. Yeah. He owns it. <laughs> the second from the beginning, when he goes, and we wear prayer shawls. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you ask why? Well, I'll tell you. I don't know. How did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and immediately I'm like, I'm in. I love this man. This is my I man. love it. Oh, when he's screaming at everyone, and he's had to he's had to be horrible to his daughter. And he hates himself. You can tell he hates how he's had to shun Kava. Yeah. But he's just like, this is all, no, I, this is my line. This is my line in the sand. I can't go past it. And there's a lot of reasons why. And then he turns around and he's like, Woman, before I get angry, because when I get angry, even flies don't dare to fly. I'm very frightened of you. After we finish supper, I'll thank you. Well then, I'm the man in the house. I'm the head of the family. 
And I want to see Mottle's new machine now! Now let's go home. Now we go home! <laughs> <laughs> it's just so well delivered. That is such dad energy. It's just yeah. hilarious. Just all of that. And the fact that the charm that he brings to the character is so important because he could just be a controlling asshole. Mm -hmm. But instead, you see all of the conflict in him. That's what he's doing so well. Like all of the on the other hand scenes are so good because you see him being like, they made a pledge. Wait, you don't do that. But, well, I, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> and his whole thing is just like, he doesn't want to be mean. He's just like, I'm going to get in so much trouble. No. When he realizes he has to tell his wife, how am I <laughs> yeah. going to tell her? Yeah. And then he and then he gets the idea for the dream. Yep. And he just grins all over his face. Everything about him is so magical. And it is just that he's real. He's so real. Yeah. He doesn't try to oversell the comedy. He yeah. doesn't try to ham it up. He just tries to go, what would this guy do? Mm -hmm. which is just the foundation of acting. All right, I got this guy. He has all this stuff. What would he do? Yeah. <laughs> How would he actually react to this? He'd be a little angry, and then he'd also think about it because he's not, he's not like closed off to new ideas. He sees Perchik talking about, you know, talking about Bolshevism, and he's like, come teach my daughters. I like you. Mm -hmm. You're weird, but interesting. <laughs> like he's not, he's not closed off to the outside world. But then it just starts wreaking havoc on everything he understands. Yeah. Just so good. He is he is really good. And I really, and I know this probably isn't as much the actor's choice as much as the writers or creators, but I really appreciate that he is not like the one note angry dad trope mm -hmm. with his daughters. And we just, we didn't get two hours and 45 minutes of him like shunning his daughters only to turn around at the end and finally say out loud that he loves them you know we, that's not what we had to deal with he was open to more modern ideas and to you know they're honored their pledge and I just appreciated that I like that he verbalized what his problem was mm -hmm. it wasn't that you're trying to marry somebody that I don't approve of it's that this is just not how it's been done before this is not what I know I'm not used to this I'm supposed right. to make the decisions, right? Isn't that right. how it's supposed to work? And then it's like, I'm getting cut out of this. I'm not important anymore mm -hmm. to this process. And it's like, so if I don't matter, then like, then does any of this matter? Like, it's part of his identity. Yeah. So like, I like that in, in other media, he would just be an asshole. Yep. Uh, or like the closed off dad. And like, here he's like, he's just like actively telling everyone like this is why i have a problem he's actually communicating it's important right imagine if everyone communicated good <laughs> role model perfect no right but role models shouldn't be perfect and i know it's written into the show but the fact that there is a song that after a good chunk of this has happened he goes to his wife and goes wait a minute do you, you love, love me, me? mm-hmm <laughs> Like, wait, like, and of course, it seems like a bizarre thing, but it's actually a question that they've never bothered to ask each yeah. other. I like that even That's she's amazing. just like, why are you asking me this? This is the dumbest thing ever. 
And then I also like that they're both like, yeah, I do. And they're yeah. like, but also like, it doesn't change anything, but it's nice to know. And it's like, <laughs> that is the most precious thing mm-hmm. ever. And all I can think about while they're singing that is Kurt and the little girl from the elementary school singing that in Gilmore Curls. Oh my gosh, I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> All right, well, we have a who could have been better. We have several, but we do have a big one that we have to talk about. They're all wrong, but I'll allow the conversation. (laughs) Lovers of the original Broadway show were a little miffed because the original Tevye, Zero Mostel, was not offered the role. Oh. Now, Zero Mostel is a fantastic actor. Sure. Like, if you've ever seen the original producers, you know he's amazing. Okay. He's so stagey as an actor. And again, you ever see him and stuff, he's magnificent, but he is very presentational. Very. Okay. I think his version of the show, some of that is what they were staging. They were staging a much more lighthearted fair. They were going at the fun of the story. It's still heartfelt, but what Topol brings to it is a groundedness to the character. There's something much deeper that he tapped into with Tevia. And, you know, I would like to listen to the entire original cast recording to get an idea of how Zero comes mm-hmm. across those different scenes. For his part, Jewison, because he went realistic with the film, he wanted somebody believable. Mm-hmm. Quote, one reason I liked Topol's performance so much on the stage was that he projected his sense of destiny as and pride in being a Jew. His Tevya never loses dignity and strength. He is a man who knows who he is and where he's going. I think for Topol, he projected a little bit of his own sense of identity into the character that wasn't necessarily in Zero Mostel's repertoire. Like, it's just mm-hmm. not what he did with the character at all. And I think Jewison was making a very specific movie, so yeah. he wanted mm-hmm. to get the right actor for that. To his credit, Topol credited Mostel for originating the role. Quote, anyone who ever plays Tevye should be thankful to Zero Mostel. He gave us all room, and I know I wouldn't have done the movie without the advantage of a year's rehearsal on stage. However, Mostel was not so gracious. Oh. Uh, he was apparently rather bitter about not being asked about the role. At one point in the late 70s, his son, Josh Mostel, was offered the role of Blotto, in Delta House, a TV spinoff of Animal House. Zero told him, quote, tell them to ask Topol's son if he wants the job, unquote. A little bitter. A little bitter. And also has nothing to do with Topol. Has everything to do with the production and himself. No. Like, not to shit on Zero, but like, it's the production. Mm -hmm. It's, It's that thing of like, 
you're a magnificent actor. You're just wrong for this production. For what this project's going to be. Now, you know, I can also understand a little bit of the bitterness because Topol then, you know, made it his entire life's work. Yeah, but nobody knew that was going to happen, including Topol. No. Nobody, nobody could have known that. No. So. Um, yeah, <sighs> I mean, like, I get that like the pang of bitterness but like that's being mad that you know somebody stole your boyfriend it's like that nobody stole your boyfriend on the other hand solid bit solid joke right there from oh it's Zero a Mosul. solid joke but also <laughs> like wow use the child <laughs> yeah now also who could have been better turning down the role were orson wells yep anthony quinn that's a decent choice if you're not going to go with another guy who's done it on stage. Okay. And Marlon Brando. Of course. I knew Marlon Brando's yeah. name was going to get. Why does he show up every goddamn time? Because he's big and pretty. He's Marlon Brando. He's mumbles. <laughs> mumbles. Mumbles. With style, right? He mumbles with style. That's why. Sure. <laughs> you know what? He did The Godfather instead. And that was a magnificent. That was mm-hmm. the correct choice. So you know what? Agreed. Good. Good. Now, a couple of people who wanted the role and were not asked. Oh, okay. That happens. Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Hell no. What? The most Italian man ever. What? No, Frank. Can sorry. I, get a little Frank Sinatra. <sighs> Fuck off, dude. No. Skinny, scrawny Frank Sinatra and Danny Kay. Okay, Danny Kay. Oh, I see, I love. Look, I'm not saying Danny Kay would have been right for this role. But I love Danny Kay. Okay, here's the thing. Danny Kay could have, he's probably too old at this point, but he could have been fun as one of the son-in-laws. Yeah. His voice would have been great for that. I think he's talented. Oh, he he is. I like Danny Kay. No, no, no. Danny Kay's fucking incredible. Danny Kay's great. He was probably too old for those types of roles. Too old and also like. I can't imagine it being anyone else other than who it is. So it's hard to. So Danny Kay like real thin. Yeah, oh, exactly. Kind of Exa- scrawny. Yeah, mm-hmm. not Tevya. <laughs> like Tevya can be skinny, but he it's has true. to have a big presence. Yeah, like I'd be, I could be down with a small Tevya. That's true. He's got to have a big voice and a big presence. Now we get to Norma Crane playing Golda. Golda. This is her final film role. Right before filming, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Only Norman Jewison, Topol, and associate producer Patrick J. Palmer knew, and they all kept her secret. Now, before this, she doesn't have anything of particularly note on her credits. She did a lot. She worked a lot. She had a lot of television, specifically. One interesting note about her, she was close friends with Natalie Wood, who reportedly paid her medical bills and funeral costs. During all of this. And on a lighter note and fun fact, she studied drama at the Texas State College for Women, which is now known as TWU in Denton. Wow. That's cool. What do we think of Norma Crane in this movie? She is the perfect curmudgeon to Topol. Mm Mm-hmm. Because she's just like, Let's go. We gotta get like we gotta do the business. We gotta get these girls married. Shut up. Let's go. Like just stop yeah. yakking. Eat your soup. <laughs> she does not have time for anyone's business. She reminds me a lot of David's grandma. Oh, 
She reminds me a lot of you. I, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true. (laughs) That's not a bad thing. No, but I I 100% get in these modes where I was like, I ain't got time for the y'all's business. Like, yeah. I'm not, I don't want to listen. I don't want to hear jokes. I don't care that farts are funny, which is yeah. usually the thing that I'm saying constantly. I don't care. Like, shut up, put shoes on. I like, am the papa. Oh, I'm so scared. We can talk about it when we get home. Now let's go. Exactly. <laughs> this is, this is my concerned face. Yeah. I just, <laughs> yeah. I'm Golda. Just tattoo it on my forehead. True. <laughs> just perfectly matches him. Yeah, she does. And somehow remains endearing despite being a total curmudgeon. She's not mean. No. She's just no nonsense. She's just a sturdy Russian woman who does not have time for anyone's bullshit because she has to take care of everything. Yeah, I can't be bothered by y'all's nonsense. I have to make the food. Fuck off. Yes. I I originally (laughs) wanted her to be again i have seen this movie one time i know nothing about it so (laughs) going into it seeing her in the first few scenes i especially interacting with her kids i her daughters i originally wanted her for a beat there to be like warmer Mm -hmm. i was like uh, initially i was like "Mm, i don't know how i feel about this character but two things one she is the perfect curmudgeon right I, i think she's a great match and two Piggybacking on what David just said, it took me like 30 seconds to realize, oh, she has five daughters. Uh-huh. Like she is taking care of everything and everyone mm-hmm. all the time. And she has no time for anyone's shit. No. I would be that way too. I'm occasionally that way. And I only have two kids. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Same. So yeah, I, I warmed, I I definitely warmed up to her. It just took me. Like, what's your deal? What's your deal? Yeah, I liked. I like when my original like opinion or assumption about a character is proved wrong. I love that, and it was done at least twice in this in this movie. So. <laughs> and then they flip it around because she goes to the priest, yeah, to ask about Chava, which is like because of all of the historical context behind mm-hmm. that is so fraught. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's walking into that Orthodox church knowing. If anybody decides right now, they could probably just kill me. Like, this is terrifying, but Mm -hmm. it's my daughter. (laughs) I need to know. Mm -hmm. And then even when she knows I'm not supposed to say anything about her to her, I'm just, uh, but still, she can't let it go because it's her daughter. (laughs) It's that stuff where it's like, it's buried again underneath all of this weight of culture above all of them that they're all slowly breaking through. Yeah. <laughs> the whole time they're trying to figure out, okay, clearly something's not right with all of this stuff, but what's still okay? What still makes sense in our tradition and what doesn't? And mm-hmm. that's the whole conflict of the story. <laughs> Who could have been better? Hannah Maron, a very famous Israeli actress, a Yiddish theater legend, she could not appear in the film. She lost a leg in a terrorist attack in 1970 in Munich, was unable to take on a role. The 70s were a rough go. (laughs) Wow. was not expecting that. Yep. Anne Bancroft, who would have been magnificent. She's got that, I ain't got time for your business attitude down. 
That's like her default mode. I love it. She turned it down because Golda's role was too small compared to Tevius, which is a power move only an Anne Bancroft could pull. I was going to say it's a power move. <laughs> I love it. That is something only Anne Bancroft, wife to Mr. Anne Bancroft, the man who made Spaceballs, uh, <laughs> could pull. <laughs> oh, yeah. She was married to Mel Brooks. I always think she's married to Jerry Stiller. No, no, no. Anne Bancroft married to married to Mel Brooks. And Jerry Stiller is married to a different famous lady. Can't remember her name. And Mira. Exactly. There you go. They're both ants. That's why. They're both ants. And they look similar. They both looked very similar in their later years. So that's why I'm confused. Also, Geraldine Page and Colleen Dewhurst. I mean, if anybody else was going to do it, it'd be Anne Bancroft. But uh, yeah. I like Anne Bancroft. Agreed. But you know, power to her. She knew. She knew. She's like, I'm not playing second fiddle to this dude. Oh, I'm <laughs> Anne fucking Bancroft. I'm a Hollywood legend already. So Norma, Norma got the role of a lifetime and she mm-hmm. really, really yeah. did well with that. Did. She really did. And finally, for two main characters, we're going to talk first about Leonard Fry playing model. Before this, he was in The Magic Christian and The Boys in the Band. After this, he did basically television, like so much television. But he also appeared in More of the Buffalo Room and Up the Academy. He was an original cast member of the play The Boys in the Band, which was a groundbreaking gay drama on Off-Broadway. And he was also in the horribly ill-considered musical Lolita, My Love. If you've ever listened to Lolita Podcast by Jamie Loftus, you will know this was a musical comedy based on Lolita, which is real fucked up. He also played the rabbi's son in the original Fiddler on the Roof. What do we think of Leonard Fry playing model in this movie? So cute. He's very cute. Model is adorable. He's just so sweet. And like, Tevye's kind of mean to him, but like, you get it. Model's a pushover. <laughs> he is, but he's not that fussed by it. But then like when he gets his sewing machine. Okay. So like when the, the, the whole like the uh, a new arrival, the family's like, okay, baby. And then they're all like fussing over the sewing, the sewing machine. machine. So and the like, baby's I in the back. It. And it's like, oh, wait, no, they did have a baby, but nobody cares. <laughs> but nobody cares. <laughs> it's like, I love, this is dads with their new grill. Like mm-hmm. this is what that is. Like. I love this. This makes me so happy. So good. <laughs> Great. He's yeah. just adorable. Just just that line. Just that line that he gets. After title says it to him. But, but first I wanted to save up enough of my own sewing machine so we'd have Stop talking nonsense. You are just a poor tailor. That's true, Reptivia, but even a poor tailor is entitled to some happiness. And that that line is what seals it for Tevia, who's mm-hmm. like, Mm-hmm. He's right. <laughs> uh, he's he's so good. He's so perfect for that like sweet, unassuming little character who is yeah. just like, I just love that girl. Don't marry make her marry Laser Wolf. Laser Wolf. Which by the I mean that name. That's crazy. It's fantastic, Laser Wolf. Okay, that's not who we're talking about, sorry. But <laughs> And then Rosalind Harris playing Seidel. Her only other major film role was in The Cotton Club. However, she has had a history with this show in particular. She understudied for Seidel in the original Broadway production. Okay. Her counterpart, who appeared on stage, was Bette Midler. (gasps) Bette Midler's early days included a long run late in the original run of Fiddler on the Roof. 
She played Seidel and a couple other roles. Wow. Yeah. Now, in the late 1980s, she also toured in a revival of Fiddler on the Roof as Golda. She's older. It's time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. Yeah. Her Tevia was played by Topol. Of course. Of course. Obviously. <laughs> her dad played her husband. Sure. So in this movie, he's her dad. And 20 years later, he's her husband. Yeah, that track. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. That's amazing. I love it. What do we think of Rosalind Harris in this movie? I, I think she's great. Yeah. I can't think of anyone else. You know, sometimes when you watch a movie and you it doesn't quite feel like the right pick. And maybe you have someone in mind that you would like to see in the role. I didn't mm-hmm. have that for anyone in this movie. Sure. You know, it was more just, yeah, I, I, I definitely enjoyed her character. So I think she did a good job. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I also have to say, there's something kind of amazing about the fact that they pulled all this off with a bunch of Broadway actors mm-hmm. at the end of the day. A lot of it is the fact that we have such an amazing lead. Like yes. having Topol there is crucial. Everybody else, and like I picked these as the leads. They honestly could have been our pawns because Topol's really carrying most of the movie himself. Yeah, yeah, he is. There are no stars, and what's really fascinating are some of the our pawns and the fact that you know even people who weren't our pawns, almost all of the minor characters were Yiddish and Jewish actors who all emigrated from either Germany or many of them from Russia and from the places in the former USSR. They're all from the same place that the shtetls were. They all understood that too. So like, it's wild how many of them, their families had emigrated from over there. So like, they're all returning to this cultural standpoint of their, of their genealogy and stuff. It's wild. And there's a lot of who could have been betters for a lot of these different roles. Now, they have casting notes of people that they had possibly brought in to do different roles. Some of the bigger names are Richard Dreyfus, Scott Glenn, and John Ritter, all apparently auditioned for what they can only think would have been Model Perchik and Fiedka. Wow. If I'm going to pick Dreyfus as Perchik, Ritter as Model, Scott Glenn as Fiedka. Did I get it? I guess. I don't know them that well. Richard Dreyfus as communist student guy. Uh, yes. Yeah, definitely. John Ritter as sweet, sweet model. Yes. yes. And Scott Glenn, our friend from various movies, as Fiedka the Gentile. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can't argue with that. How about Rob Reiner as model? <laughs> That'd be funny. Yeah. Not as good as John Ritter. I like I was going to say John Ritter would John be John Ritter's better. Yes. Especially for the model we see in this movie. Yes. How about Katie Segal for an unknown role? They just had her on one of the casting sheets. My guess would have been Hoddle or Hava. I mean, I really enjoy Katie Segal. Katie Segal as as Hava would have been really interesting. Yeah. She would yeah. be really good in that in that daughter who finds a boy of another faith. And Talia Shire for Hoddle or Zidal. Yep. I don't know who that is. I'm sorry. Adrian! Oh! Yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thank you for the one word cue that that no one could miss. (laughs) That's that's Talia Shire. (laughs) There there could have been some movie stars and it just... Yeah. They instead got this exact right cast. They really did. 
All right, let's go to our pawns. We have Molly Pycon playing Yenta. She is an icon of Yiddish theater and comedy. She did 200 productions in the 30s in the U.S. after touring Europe. Wow. All of it in Yiddish. Um, her dominant performances in comedy actually led her to dramatic roles as well. And then late in life, she appeared in the film Come Blow Your Horn with Frank Sinatra and in Cannonball Run and Cannonball Run 2. She is cited as the Jewish Charlie Chaplin or the Jewish Helen Hayes. Wow. I have one who could have been better for Yenta. The original Yenta on Broadway was none other than Beatrice Arthur, the golden girl herself. What? Wow. Would have been a different Yenta, but would have been amazing. Totally. Yeah. But yeah, amazing. Very different, I feel. But Mm -hmm. yeah. I will say, though, if you're lending to the authenticity, having this woman who's so steeped in the Yiddish theater culture honestly fits a little bit better. Yes. Mm-hmm. Agree. I think. I think B. Arthur on stage really makes a fun impact. Oh, yeah. About Paul Michael Glazer playing Perchik. This is Starsky from Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> Sorry, what? Yes. Uh... Starsky from the 70s goofiness, Starsky and Hutch. That guy is playing Perchik, the student revolutionary in this movie. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I don't. Okay. That's a wow. <laughs> Shimon Ruskin playing Morcha. He was blacklisted by actor Lee J. Cobb in the HUAC hearings in the 50s and 60s. He received a settlement in 1965. He appears as the landlord in The Producers, the original. Zve Schooler playing the rabbi, he originated the role of Morcha on Broadway. He was a longtime veteran of Yiddish theater, just like Molly, and he mostly played rabbis. This was perfect role for him. Louis Zorich playing the constable, he played Uncle Ben Lohman in the 1985 Death of a Salesman, a role as a Greek millionaire in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and appeared as Bert Buchman in 70 episodes of Mad About You. Barry Denon playing Mendel. He is a voice actor extraordinaire, but probably best known as Pontius Pilate in 1973's film version of Jesus Christ Superstar. Vernon Dotchev playing a Russian official. He had a little role as Max Kalba in The Spy Who Loved Me. More Bond connections. So many Bond connections. <gasps> yeah. So many. Totolemko playing The Fiddler. He is a notable character actor. One of the best roles you might know him is the imam in Raiders of the Lost Ark that shows Indy how to find the location of the Ark. Yeah. Fun note, Jewison made him go through seven different instruments until he finally picked the fiddle that worked best. (laughs) So he had to dance around with seven different things. As the actual soloist, if he gets his own special credit, is Isaac Stern. He was a true violin virtuoso. He began playing at eight and at his peak was performing 200 concerts a year. But even more notable than his violin playing is the fact that after hearing proposals to raise Carnegie Hall in the late 1950s, he mobilized a bunch of artists, philanthropists, and politicians to get behind legislation so that New York City could acquire the hall for the city itself for $5 million. He literally saved Carnegie Hall. He received a National Medal of the Arts from the NEA and has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He is a big fucking deal. And his violin playing is magnificent. Wow. Jeez. Roger Lloyd Pack playing the sexton in the church. This is Barty Crouch from the Goblet of Fire. Oh. (laughs) We're the same person. (laughs) 
We spent too much time together. <laughs> He's also he was also in a couple of like long time British sitcoms, but like this that's the n- thing any everybody would know him from. He also played against David Tennant as a villain in Doctor Who that around that same time, which is fun. He's also a villain against David Tennant in Harry Potter. I know. And finally, our director, Norman Jewison, appears in the film. He is the voice of the rabbi singing Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov in Tevye's Dream. Aww. <laughs> All right. Awards. Awards. This movie was nominated for eight Oscars. Okay. I believe it. It won Best Cinematography. Oswald Morris. You know, we talked about the pantyhose on the lens and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Got him an Oscar. He was not allowed time off from the film he was working on to go to Los Angeles for the ceremony. We're not sure if that film was Lady Caroline Lamb or 1972's Sleuth. But early in the morning in London, he got a phone call. He was woken up way early. And Walter Mears informed him that he had won an Oscar. <laughs> he was fast asleep. Wow. It won Best Sound, and it won Best Music Adaptation. John Williams' first ever Oscar was for this adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. That is awesome. It's one of those things where you're like, you think John Williams, you think, well, the first thing he did was like Jaws, right? And you're like, "Mm, not quite. Not quite. This was first. It lost... Five other Oscars. It lost Best Art Set Decoration to Nicholas and Alexandra, another Russian period piece. I don't know what was going on in 71. Yeah. It lost Best Director to William Friedkin for The French Connection. That's a no. (laughs) This is where I knew. I was like, oh, God. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm not pleased about this. Yeah. Leonard Frey was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Model. He lost to Ben Johnson for The Last Picture Show. Okay. Ben Johnson's an older character actor, and Leonard Fry's good, but I don't think he's, like, Oscar good. Sure. Yeah, like, I can't I can't be mad about that. No, not that much. Right. Now, nominated for Best Actor, Topol. Mm. He lost to Gene Hackman for The French <sighs> Connection. I am very angry about this now. Okay, but am I? Gene Hackman is good. I don't think it's right, but I think it is closer than we might contend. That movie, not great. Gene Hackman, fucking great in it. Who else is in this category? We also have Peter Finch for Sunday Bloody Sunday, Walter Matthau for Koch, and George C. Scott for The Hospital. Three movies that have really not stood the test of time that well. Okay, so... It was between these two. Yeah. It, it was definitely between those two. Cause, yeah, a vote didn't get split. Well, a vote was split. But there may have been enough siphoned off from the other three collectively. Look, we we talked about this when we talked about the French connection. And part of the problem was we hadn't seen Fiddler. Sure. Mm. I think at the time, the French connection was one of those movies that in its moment was mind blowing because it was doing a whole lot of things. It was doing the things we see in action movies all the time now, like all the Bourne movies. The French Mm -hmm. connection did that before anybody else in like. 30 years earlier. That's the only reason I think it won all these awards because Fiddler also lost Best Picture to The French Connection that year. Wow. And I, I don't think The French Connection is a better movie at all, but I think it was just that the Academy was so intrigued by what that movie was doing and how differently it was doing it mm-hmm. that they all went for it and Fiddler 
the people who have criticisms of the show, like people who give it slightly negative reviews, almost every time they're just like, I'm stalling musicals. That's literally the response. Yeah. Because anybody who's just like meh on musicals still goes, yeah, but this movie's awesome. Like, I could take or leave a musical, but Fiddler, Fiddler's amazing. And it's just the only people who hate this movie are people who hate musicals. And Hollywood at the time hated musicals. So that is the only logical explanation I have. Fiddler on the Roof is such a better movie. Yeah. 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 All right. On to a few more pieces of trivia. While Tevye's dream is presented in desaturated color to give it that dream feel, there is, on the special edition DVD, a full-color version of the song that you can see. As part of figuring out the accuracy of the film, movie researcher Lillian Michelson, who was not credited, had a unique challenge. Usually, she hunted down historical pictures of items that they needed to recreate. That was really her research skill. But there were no pictures to be found of Jewish girls' underwear from the 1890s for the matchmaker sequence. Yeah. So, she wound up going to a Jewish restaurant and talking to older women there to see if any of them remembered what they looked like around that time period. A woman stopped her, told her, wait here, because she was going to go to her apartment and, quote, cut you out a pattern because we had to sew our underwear back then, unquote. So she went up to a little old Jewish woman. She's like, hold on. I'm going to go cut you a pattern. Give me a minute. Love it. Wow. While filming If I Were a Rich Man, Topol had a severe toothache. Ooh. Ooh. I know that pain. Yeah. The snow on the ground near the end of the film was actually marble dust. Marble dust? Yeah. Crushed up glass. Which, you know what, makes a lot of sense, honestly, because it it sticks to the ground. Yeah. You don't have it flying around everywhere. Sure. The cart horse that was brought in for the movie that keeps going lame and Tevye's got to carry his own cart, they nicknamed it Shmuel, and it was purchased from a lot destined for a Zagreb glue factory. Yeah. Yeah. You know. They rescued a real horse from a glue factory. They did. After production, Norman Jewison paid a local farmer to keep the horse for the rest of its natural life, and it lived for another three years after the film was completed. And finally, when Tevye is talking to God, Topol was talking to a white ball on the end of a stick. As you do when you need something to focus on. I like that, like a a place to direct himself. That's not an uncommon, it happens a lot now, especially with like all the mocap and CGI people do, that usually you just give somebody like, a little ball on something so you've got somewhere to put your eyes yeah. but they definitely did that so that he would actually have someone mm-hmm. to talk to <laughs> which again just makes it feel all the more personal yeah yeah and that leads us to ratings for every film we have its own dedicated rating system for this movie what are we gonna pick how many fiddles fiddles right oh that's very fair i mean it's the cheesiest of options but like that's not that cheesy. No. How many fiddles are we going to give this movie? I'll go first. You know, I thought about it. I've heard some of the better criticisms of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people just go, it's too long. And, you know, you might be able to say that here and there. Maybe it drags a little bit. No, I don't care. It's five fiddles. I want to have Tevya's energy in life. Mm. Like, that is the person I want to be. Mm. To just be so dedicated 
to <laughs> being nice and wonderful and also a little dramatic when it's time to be a little dramatic, but then just rein it in because I know it's not what I'm supposed to do. I just everything about that character and then the way the story captures a particular place and time and a particular culture in a way that's that just feels real. Mm-hmm. Like I know the idea of authenticity can be a real sticky subject and can sometimes get into bad territory. But what this movie does is this is how it would have been. Take it or leave it. It's not all good and it's not all bad. It just is what it is. And the wonderful thing is the fact that the people involved in this still find joy regardless. That's what's amazing about the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's five fiddles. I can't go any lower. <laughs> yeah, Kristen, how many fiddles are you going to give this movie? Oh, I'm going to give it four, mostly because I don't want to copy David. <laughs> I'm going to give it four, honestly, because I don't think it's a movie I personally can absorb in one sitting. Fair. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I will watch a three-hour movie again, uh, I think speaks to the four mm-hmm. fiddles. I love musicals. I love musicals. Mm-hmm. And so I liked all the music. There may have been one I didn't care for, but it, regardless, I liked all yeah. or the majority of the songs. Uh, it was emotional. I really liked Tevi's relationships with his daughter and with Golda and the hardships or the tragedy, just ever. I'm just n- talking about the whole movie. I just liked the whole movie, but I need to watch it again, which is why I'm going to give it four for now. You might say you might watch it multiple times and make it a tradition. I'm, David? You could watch it sunrise to sunset. <laughs> just be glad you don't have to live with this. Celebrate a toast to life. <laughs> Diana, how many fiddles are you going to give this movie? I'm about to knock it down a fiddle. Ah, God damn. Because of you. Ah, every time you do that a fiddler falls off a roof (laughs) if i were a rich man i'd I'd buy more fiddles you know it was a five and now it's three (laughs) (laughs) you killed two fiddlers david i don't think i did (laughs) you did you killed two fiddlers you're really putting three fiddles just for that no it's it's a five because i loved it i i really did i really enjoyed it i need to get the soundtracks so that I can fully learn the actual songs and not the uh, pop culture uh, versions of them that are in my head. Mm. I want to see the stage musical as soon as I'm able to, uh, because I love, I really did love it that much. So that really speaks to the experience of watching this. And I, I didn't hate it being uh, three hours and, you know, I'm usually the one who's like, it's two hours. Okay, I get. I I'm, I think I can make it. I think I can make it. Yeah, which is just sad. Just sad now. But it's just so good. But yeah, it was really. It was. It was fun. Yeah, great. And that leads us to the end of this episode. Kristen, thank you so much for coming on this show to talk about yeah. this wonderful movie. Thank you for having me. I'll come back and talk about musicals anytime. Yay! <laughs> we'll have to do this again. There's too many musicals. There's, there's, there's too many. Ma- there's many more. And if people wanted to find you on the wide, wide, wonderful world of the interwebs, where could they find you? Uh, if people wanted to find me on the interwebs, the best place is probably Twitter. Um, I'm at Kristen is no Jedi, K-R-I-S-T-I-N. And I I don't talk about movies often. Sometimes I do. I talk a lot about tabletop role-playing games. So if that's your kind of nerd, then you might find my Twitter interesting. But yeah, that's the best place to find me. 
All right. Well, thank you again. And until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.